0: And welcome everyone to the Cajun Strong Style Podcast, 103.7 The Game's exclusive pro wrestling podcast. Appreciate you listening in, however you're doing. So be it through 103.7 thegamecom Game.com, the free 103.7 The Game mobile app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and any other way you consume your favorite podcast. It was a busy week in pro wrestling, especially when it comes to two big pay-per-views over the weekend. But we'll talk about those in a little bit. But of course, we got to start things off right with the three count. We start off with big news concerning a star in pro wrestling that definitely shone bright a couple months ago at AEW, both at dark. Then they had like an hour show during the NBA playoffs a couple months ago. And that is Ben Carter. He signed with WWE officially. They dropped a video package for him entirely, promoting him for NXT UK and also getting a little bit of a rub from Seth Rollins. After all, Carter trained at Rollins and Merrick Braves Black and Brave Academy in Iowa. So the rub is definitely not coming out of nowhere, but I'm looking forward to seeing what happens down the road. In fact, Ben Carter put out on Twitter after the video package came out saying, One day I'll wrestle WB Rollins and everyone will rejoice. Everyone remember this tweet. Definitely similar to what the Young Bucks said about the FTR match that was coming down the road. They put that tweet out years ago, said they were going to wrestle the Revival and everybody would rejoice. So looking forward to seeing what happens with Ben Carter, a guy that definitely showed me a lot back when he was in AEW for those like two matches, one against Scorpio Sky. He is absolutely a star of the future. Looking over at New Japan, they had a big announcement over the weekend that on January 5th, night two of Wrestle Kingdom 15, there's going to be a Joshi match because they're partnering with Stardom, and it's going to be really cool to, that this is going to happen for the second straight year. We haven't seen the match be announced at this time, and it's not known yet if it's going to be a dark match or if it's going to be part of the main card, which seems to be full up at this point on both nights. But again, this is a setup because of the fact that Bushiroad owns both new Japan and stardom after purchasing it back, purchasing the company back in the fall. because going to be interesting to see how this whole thing goes. This is the second straight year. They're doing this because they did it back at Wrestle kingdom 14 last year. And this was my Atani and Arisa Hoshiki taking on the late Hanakamura and Julia who has absolutely taken people's breath away as of late, seeing a lot of pictures on her, of her online. And needless to say, she is definitely making waves right now in Japan at Stardom. So looking forward to seeing how they kind of push this going forward. I'll talk about Wrestle Kingdom in a couple weeks because I have got some plans for that. I might be pushing back the first podcast of the new year. Just to make sure I'm able to catch both nights of Wrestle Kingdom. We'll keep you posted. Make sure you check out our Twitter account, at Cajun Strong Style. And then the last bit of news involves AEW announcing or filing two trademarks a few days ago. This happened on Wednesday, December 16th, and the rumors and speculations are this may be the name of AEW's second television program it's expected to launch soon. And it's basically they trademarked AEW Elevation and AEW Dark. Obviously, AEW Dark is the show they have on YouTube each and every Tuesday night, and it's always kind of a stacked card. So I'm interested to see how this kind of goes with the way things are set up. It's AEW Dark. And odds are, I think AEW Dark might be shifting more towards, you know, a almost pseudo recap show, but also giving you a couple bonus matches. Because I think the plan is, because I usually have AEW Dark be like a 13 card show. And it's just nothing but wrestling. And it's great. Don't get me wrong. It's great. It's usually about an hour, an hour and a half. I would love to see Dark get trimmed down to just an hour. I'd like to see it get trimmed down to an hour. And you give two maybe three matches at the most and you make each of those guys look good and give them plenty of time to put together a good story be able to establish a really good story in AEW Dark's canon while AEW Elevation and this would be like your guys you're having the indie talents like a Serpentico or somewhere along those lines somebody who is not on the quote unquote main roster but guys you're getting from the indies just to give them a little bit of a showcase and give them a little bit of a rub and then Elevation is that next level. You have guys who are part of AEW, just couldn't quite fit into the storylines of AEW Dynamite, but they are elevated up there. So I look, look forward to seeing how this whole story goes with AEW elevation, elevation, excuse me, and AEW Dark. Going to be fun to see how that happens going forward because we all know TNT wants a new show. So hopefully, we get something like that and this trademark maybe a step in that direction. Now, let's start things off with what I think was probably a phenomenal pay-per-view that maybe not everybody got to see. And that was what's going on with ROH and their Final Battle 2020 pay-per-view on Friday night. This was a really good show, to say the least. Definitely way better than what SmackDown was. And I felt like they had just some really cool stuff that I feel like maybe people were sleeping on. And this is a prime example. And this is, like, our One was amazing. This is free on YouTube, and I recommend you go check that out if you haven't already. He's we start off with a fatal four-way match between Dag Draper, Tony Deppin, LSG, and Josh Woods. And the winner gets a TV title shot later that night. And this was a really high-quality, entertaining match. And this is on the free show, and there was actually something interesting in there. It was a well-done four-way, Lucha rules in place, and the commentary kept resetting that throughout the match. This is something, for me, who hasn't seen a whole lot of Lucha in terms of a fatal four-way, it was unique enough to where I was being refreshed about, oh, hey, this is what what they're doing. It's basically, it's our, it's one-on-one. Anytime somebody goes outside the ring, another one can come in. And it just absolutely continued to sell that lucha rules. And things just got crazy towards the end of the match. They were just going nuts. And Tony Deppin won the match. Shocker of the year. Winning it with a nice roll-up to advance and take on Dragon Lee later that night. And that was definitely intriguing enough. And then, of course, you had a lot of other stuff go on as well. With the fact that you have two matches that are taken off the car due to COVID-19. with The, uh, the Mexican squad was out due to COVID. They went backstage. There was definitely a lot of cool backstage stuff in between the matches. Shane Taylor and crew turned down the six-man tag titles because they were actually going to vacate them and give them to Shane Taylor's people. But he decided not to, and the match was off due to COVID. Then Yet a little bit later, Tony Depp had a post-match promo backstage. And I love this promo from him. It was awesome because it established him as a man with something to prove. He's a relative unknown and how he's going to prove himself in a match against an established guy like Dragon Lee, a guy that's been a star in Japan, has really kind of proven himself a lot in a ring of honor over the last year. Then we get to another backstage segment a little bit later on. It continues to be a lot of backstage stuff. Because this is after Dalton Castle walks off the commentary set to basically go call out one of the other members of Mexico Squad, Ray Oris, which we'll get to a little bit later, and Jay Briscoe is being interviewed by Quinn McKay, and basically he's told he tries to get back together with the Briscoe brothers for the tag team title match later that night, but turns out Mark is like, Nah, man, you missed your opportunity, and again, Jay Briscoe, EC3, that's another match that was off, and then he has an interaction with. Shane Taylor, so we get to see that match, and that alone was like, okay, that's lit. I want to see this match go down because these two could absolutely go at it like crazy. Then we get to the Pure Rules Tag Team match. This is the first ever Pure Rules Tag Team match in Ring of Honor. It's Fred Yehai and Wheeler Yuta, two guys who were in the Pure Tournament, taking on two members of the foundation, and Tracy Williams and Rhett Titus, and this was really cool. And I think this is something that I think you know, like people need to go out of their way and check out. Because it was so much different than anything else I have ever seen in pro wrestling. And it apparently had something to do with like Australian wrestling from back in the day. It was truly like a sharp transition, and I loved it. Because they they explained a lot in this. It was a lot more about the... It was definitely way different than modern tag team wrestling because they had to tag in and out using hands, none of the blind tag stuff, limited breakup of pinfalls, the rope breaks were still in effect from pure rules. So, and you think about it, you had the you had the rope break and the breakup of pinfalls by another tag team partner, that counted against your rope breaks. So it made... It was a very much like heightened match. You didn't have any really dirty, dusty-ish happen. This was an absolutely perfect match tag team match. A really good showcase about what maybe could be coming down the pipeline because I think that honestly Ring of Honor should try and fully embrace using the Ring of Honor like pure rules just to differentiate itself from what we see with WWE and AEW and all that stuff because I think this is a step in the right direction for them. And this really highlighted what I love about Ring of Honor since the return of the company. The way they returned, bringing back the pure title, having the pure tournament take up programming for weeks, and they continue to talk about the pure matches on Ring of Honor television. It's always a main event. It's always something to see because you know that it's going to be a winner or a loser because the pure rules, if somebody interferes, they will get terminated immediately. So it's always just it makes it interesting, and I love what they're doing right now with this. And the foundation won with a front face lock aided by the ropes. Both teams ran out of the rope, breaks so it made sense to have that be the finish of the match, and it was so damn good. I, I thought this was really a smooth match. And again, a really good tag team match that was done on for YouTube, and they actually made a dark match for the most part. The kickoff shows for WWE would just basically be like, oh, hey, we're going to go ahead and put this all together, and it's not going to mean much. This actually meant something that it was really cool to see happen. Then we open up the show, the main show, with PCO and Mark Briscoe taking on Jay Lethal and Jonathan Gresham. And I have to say, Jay Lethal and Jonathan Gresham, I wasn't necessarily a huge fan of when they won the titles last year. But they have proven themselves in a different way with this match. They absolutely handled themselves extremely well. A really cool match. But I wasn't necessarily a huge fan of the finish with Gresham getting the leverage pin to get the win on PCO. If it would have been on Mark Briscoe, it made a little bit more sense, but to see the much smaller Gresham be able to get a leverage pin on the much larger PCO was a little bit like disorienting. But they also had a really cool sequence. This is something I've been wanting to talk about. is They had a Doomsday Device by Lethal and Gresham, which, first of all, I know Mark and I'm, uh, Jay usually do it. I know they did it on um, uh, ROH TV last Monday with a... Um, uh, them hitting the Doomsday device, which looked badass as all hell. I mean, it's always cool to see that move be used. And this made me pop because it was Lethal on Gresham hitting it, and then Gresham hits a freaking Shooting Star press and gets the pin. It was just a two-count. I was like, what the hell? It was such a damn good match, and it ends like that. I love the way they put that whole match together. It was a solid, like, true start to a show. I know we could definitely get technical and say, that What they did in the pre-show was an opener, but this, in terms of a main card opener, was pretty damn good. And I'm looking forward to seeing what we see from PCO and Mark Briscoe, if that relationship continues. Now, once Jay Briscoe moves on from EC3, can the Briscoe brothers get back together? There's a lot of other moving parts here that I'm looking forward to seeing how that goes. Then we get to the second contest of the night, and this was actually added on with Ray Oris taking on Dalton Freaking Castle. It's a six-man match that got bumped earlier tonight, as I talked about earlier. So, Castle made a match for him. And the other member of the Maxis squad that actually was able to be a part of this. And this was a really, like, fine match. It was a solid replacement. No real build to it. But there was a really cool spot to end the match. With the Tornado Driver off the top rope, I'd never seen something like that. and It was absolutely hard-hitting. I was like, what the hell just happened? Why am I, like mouth agape watching this. It was a solid replace match. Not, not much to really write home about outside of the tornado driver out the top rope. It wasn't truly like the highlight real match I was expecting but you know, it's again a match that did its purpose. Fulfilled a spot on the card and replaced what could have been a really fun six man tag with Shane Taylor's team taking on Mexico Squad. Then we get to the really cool grudge match. I was surprised to see this be the third match of the card. Mike Bennett and Matt Taven taking on The Righteous, Vincent and Bateman and my god this was awesome the way they put it all together Matt Taven showing a lot of heart throughout the match and they get the OGK, the OG Kingdom get the win but it's more about getting their heat back, it's the angle that happened after the match really blew me away, it's seeing how violent that The Righteous can be and this was absolutely another angle that blew me away over the weekend. And it's the way they tied Matt Taven up in the ropes with zip ties. So you can watch Vincent break his Bennett's ankles. Basically, I'm going to explain the spot real quick. It was, you saw um, Mike Bennett and he's his legs are spread out. They put a freaking, it, I don't even know how this was possible. They put a block of wood between his legs. Not, not, not. Like that, but seriously, between his ankles. And then basically hits him with a chair, basically breaking both of his ankles and storyline. Oh, my God, it was so brutal. I did not expect that to happen. And it was like, what the hell just happened? Like, broke his ankles. And I think this is another stepping stone towards us seeing Vincent and Taven square off one-on-one. Hopefully, in a, I talked about it earlier. With the fact that we got you know the more modern pure rules of ROH and bringing that back, this is one of those matches where that needs to be thrown completely out the window. It needs to be a fight without honor, just Taven and Vincent, because I think that's really where this whole like blow off of the feud is going to be. So hopefully, we get to see that down the road, maybe at a future Ring of Honor Big Show in twenty twenty one. Then we get to the ROH television title match. Tony Depp taking on Dragon Lee, and this was another banger of a match, and I hadn't seen much of Dragon Lee before this, but I knew he was established enough. He crushed in this one. He was absolutely the star here, and he, he blew me away in a lot of his stuff in the match. Dragon Lee retains the title. Just a really cool match. He killed it. Tony Depp looked good in defeat as well. He definitely showed that plucky underdogness, and I love that from him. So, hopefully, we get to see more of that stuff down the road. Then we get to another match that was added in during the show and to replace a match with the car. Jay Briscoe, Shane Taylor. This was absolutely what I expected it to be. These two just threw down all throughout. No build to it, but it was damn good. Shane Taylor gets the win and establishes dominance. And, of course, we see respect between Jay Briscoe and Shane Taylor. But it was absolutely just hard-hitting as all get-out and absolutely want to see this match be run back. And there was another match here. Dan Housen taking on Brian Johnson. And if Dan Housen wins, he gets a contract. And I'll say this. I know people give Orange Cassidy a bunch of guff and, and give him crap for his gimmick. I don't understand the Dan Housen gimmick at all. But it was a fun match. I can definitely take away a lot of like what I've noticed from him and be like, okay, I can understand his appeal a little bit, but it's like I don't get why it's still over, why it's still being used like at this point in time. Brian Johnson was just fantastic. His promo before the match, his promo throughout the match, he kept getting cocky and was talking on the mic throughout, telling me he was going to kill the internet. And when he cussed and did the and then Dan House was like, no swear. That was absolutely funny, and I popped for that. The teeth gimmick—I didn't quite get it—and then the finish was was walky, but I, I, I again, it was unusual because usually when you see Danny Guerrero like spot outside, I think like one time he's ever done the spot with Lycheen and Steel and be able to like pull that spot off. It was never really resulted in a DQ. It was always like a distraction move. I think the only time I ever saw it be a DQ was in Eddie's last match. That's the only time I can really remember that finish actually getting a win by disqualification. This actually had a disqualification because Dan Housen wiped the microphone on his head so the paint was on the mic, which was a smart move to be honest with you. I was blown away that actually was a thing that happened in the match. But it got the win, and I was kind of surprised by that. At the fact that the teeth thing, the teeth spot again, I don't entirely understand Danhausen. But I'm not going to hate on people who aren't a fan of the Danhausen because he absolutely has potential. It's just something I don't quite understand. Maybe somebody, somebody, can explain to me what's gotten him over. Then we get to the penultimate match of the night, and it is Flip Gordon taking on Jonathan Gresham. By the way, Flip Gordon can go to hell. The way he. I, I can't stand that guy. With the whole gimmick of him being like I me. Mean, well, it's not a gimmick. It's actually his personality. He's being a complete douche, a complete bag. And the way he just absolutely did in his promo on Ring of Honor Monday, just made me realize how much of a complete hole he is. And it was just what the hell. He basically had a promo, he's like, my name is Flip Gordon, blah, 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 blah. Can I take this mask off? And it shows up with a gas mask on, like, come on, man. You can't just do one thing and then, like, do the other. It's like, I understand that's not what he believes in, and that's, like, they're embracing this whole thing about him being a complete jerk, and being an ass during a pandemic, but it's like, there's no redeemable qualities for this guy, and I love what Quinn McKay said on Twitter, saying that I'm a parlor's favorite wrestler. Is a spinner on Twitter, apparently, and everybody knows Flip Gordon, definitely a lot more of a of a right wing type guy, I would say that much, but again Flip Gordon, it's like when I think back to it, it's like, you know what Cody and guy crew made the right idea Cody was in the right this entire time by not having you know Flip Gordon be on all in and be part of AEW, maybe it was for the better and to be honest, Jonathan Gresham crushed it in this match, I've never seen him have a bad Like, match, period. It was a really fun, great title match between these two. I was really surprised, though, that Gresham won the way that he did. It was hard hitting throughout. Flip Gordon used all his rope breaks like really quickly, which was a surprise to me. I was like, why are you going to put yourself at that kind of distinct disadvantage? It was like five minutes in the match, he's already out of all of his rope breaks. It's like, does this guy not know how pre arresting rules work? And I was like, okay, this was weird. And Gresham won up winning by knockout after hitting him like 20 knees. It was such a great match and it really proved like why I think Gresham is going to be like one of the top guys in Ring of Honor. They're going to put this, they've already put this pure title over so much. I think this already has some added prestige. You had the tournament. You've had Gresham retain it in other matches. And the way that he put it together against Flip really undersells the point of what I was thinking is that Jonathan Gresham, without a doubt, is probably the future of this company. Then we get to the main event of the evening with Roosh taking on Brody King defending the ROH World Heavyweight Championship. And the video package they have done, Ring of Honor since the return, have been great. This one was really good and probably up there because, again, it explained a lot of like Brody King's why, his Maison Detre if you will, explaining why he wants to win the ROH World title. And then Amy Rose... Being the promo for Rouge worked really well. Shout out to her great promo work. The way she was like cutting the promo in Spanish, the subtitle she was going in and out of English. It was a really solid promo and established this match. If you hadn't seen like pro wrestling in Ring of Honor and hadn't seen it in the last year and don't understand like everybody, this was a good opportunity to get a, get a reset on what this character is. And I'm looking forward to seeing how this whole thing do- goes going forward. And it ruled. It was definitely, you know, Rouge and Brody King was exactly what you'd expect. These two just absolutely went at it. Several different, like, cool spots with the chairs, with Rouge going in- into the chairs and stuff. The-, the table was put into play. Just such a really hard-hitting match from two, relatively speaking, big guys. You know, Brody King is the much bigger guy, but this was a very well-paced main event. And then came the finish. With Dragon Lee running interference and helping Roosh retain the title. And again, I'm not mad at it. It's the way it was probably going to go. It felt inevitable. And it makes sense because now Roosh continues to be the top guy. And it made even more at the end of the show with the announcement that the Foundation came out. And now we get maybe some faction warfare heading into 2021 between the Foundation. That's Jay Lethal, Jonathan Gresham, with, Tracy Williams, and your boy, Rhett Titus, all squaring off against La Facción So I'm all the way here for as they approach the start of 2021. Hopefully we get that, and it turns out to be really, really good. Last tags here and talk about TLC 2020 to wrap up this edition of the Cajun Strong Stop Podcast. Honestly, I almost finally like going into dynamite, but just did not have nearly enough time to kind of like write down all of my thoughts on it. And honestly, it, I looked at some of the results. It's like, this was an okay show. It definitely feels like a lot of diminishing returns with Sting. And the fact that the ratings dipped a little bit makes sense why it dipped down a little bit. But I'm looking forward to watching Dynamite this week and kind of doing a review on that to wrap up this 2020 year. But we also got some cool stuff going on before we wrap up the year with the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. Let me make this announcement real quick before we get into the TLC 2020 review. We'll be doing a special Christmas Day edition of the Cajun Strong Style podcast. Looking back at December 22nd, 1997, Monday Night Raw, Austin, Stun, Santa. You'll realize why early on that podcast. I'm kind of writing down some notes on that one right now. And trust me, you are going to love that one. And then we'll end the year a New Year's Day edition of the Cajun Strong Style podcast alongside the regular Monday one. This will be another two straight Friday editions of the podcast dropping. And this is going to be a complete end-of-the-year review, where I'm going to give out awards, Match of the Year, Superstar of the Year, all these things that you see on the Slammies and all these other podcast gimmicks. We're going to do our version of it. I'm looking forward to talking about all my favorite matches of the Year and so much more on the New Year's Day edition of the Cage Strong Style Podcast. And then we're also going to announce some stuff for 2021, because I've got some ideas that are absolutely out there, and hopefully, I can execute these all perfectly because I think this is going to be a great year for the Cage Strong Style podcast. I'll just go ahead and say that. Now, let's get on to the kickoff show for TLC 2020. Only one match of the card, and that was Chad Gable, Otis, Daniel Bryan, and Big E taking on Intercontinental Champion Sami Zayn, King Corbin, Shinsuke Nakamura, and Cesaro. Remember when it was like the whole stable with Sami Zayn, Shinsuke, and Cesaro? Which I don't think they ever talk about anymore. I just never noticed that they don't do it anymore. But I'll say this: the Knights of the Lone Wolf thing that Baron Corbin has now—it sounds like some incel Facebook group. And I know we can't say the I word anymore on Twitch, but that's exactly what I thought about. It's like some group on Facebook, a bunch of like guys on or or on Parlor or something that they would create. Like the Knights of the Lone Wolf sounds like some kind of gimmick that somebody on parlor would come up with it. And, you know, again, these two guys were part of Forgotten Sons, so I think they may be a little bit of a better name. And also, you don't have the other guy that's now part of a lias's little gimmick, and now it's that guy. And we're sitting here like, yeah, you don't have that guy with you because we all know that, you know, I'm not going to mention his name, but he has some thoughts that honestly just don't vibe well with me. Then we start off with Big E and King Corp, and they started out the contest. Pretty standard eight-man tag team match all throughout. Everybody got their stuff in. Nothing really stood out to me. Everybody got their ish in, and it was a pinfall victory for Big E getting the big ending on Sami Zayn. And later in the night, they explained that with that win, Big E has to shot out the title on SmackDown this Friday night. So Christmas edition of SmackDown, going to have the Intercontinental titles. Hopefully, that'll pop the rating well enough. Now let's get to the main card in and of itself. The TLC match started things off with the AJ Styles with almost alongside him versus Drew McIntyre. And I was conflicted here because it was a really solid TLC match, but we also had two heels get neutered in the finish. And the fact that this was the opening contest, a TLC match should not open a pay-per-view, especially with that gimmick name. I understand why they did it, but my God, it felt so weird to see that in 2020. But a really solid match throughout. AJ Styles at one point was taken out of the ring. Miz and Morrison ran interference, and then they cashed in money in the bank, but couldn't get the job done. Almost threw Miz through a table, basically I took him off the ladder and dropped him like a sack of pricks through a table outside the ring. Then Morrison hit him with the gimmick chair that basically broke into a bajillion pieces. Like You remember when you used to play him... Uh, The SmackDown versus Raw games, and after you hit him with a chair three times, the chair just uh, disappears into oblivion. That's exactly what that looked like to me, and I had to pop for that. He no-sold it, and then, you know, didn't play a real role in the finish, but he wound up just dealing with Morrison and all that stuff. When Morrison could have just ran out the ring, he just walked backwards like a dummy, and it made him look like a big geek, a lot like Miz did. Cashing in during the TLC match. You should have just waited till later. I'll explain why in a little bit. But ends with Drew retaining after knocking both Styles and Miz off the ladder. Miz stayed in the ring. Styles didn't. Miz got the clay war and then Drew McIntyre climbed up the ladder and pulled off the pulled off the W title. It was way too easy, and it was a great match, but I felt gypped throughout that and this is gonna be the weird thing but it's a big plus for me I love the fact they did a drone shot inside the Thunderdome when they were all on the ladder so basically kind of just doing the whole punches and it made me wish we had more stuff like this in ladder matches going forward it's just something different to the presentation I remember back in the day they used to have the, the Wile E. Coyote cam this is exactly what the Wiley e. Coyote cam was devised for and I hope they continue to use some of that like that going forward but back to the Miz. In my mind, I was thinking about it, was like, especially the way they were doing the whole angle with the, with McIntyre's knee. It felt like that was going to be a bigger story in terms of you know him having to sell that knee, and then at the end of the match, he retains, but Miz and Morrison run in, get the jump on him, and then Miz puts him in the figure four after cashing in to win the WWE title. That would have been a much better way. In the show. That would have been a lot better of a way to handle things. But you know what? It is what it is. We're not going to complain about that. It Because again, it's all about putting Drew McIntyre over and overcoming the odds. So yeah, I'm all the way here for it. Then we get to the SmackDown Women's Championship match. Carmella taking on Sasha Banks. De- Sasha defending the SmackDown Women's title. And it, everybody was saying it like, She's never been able to win a pay-per-view match and defend her title properly. Well, this was not that case. She was able to pull it off, but it was a really fun match. I feel like this was, I, I'll say it, it was probably the worst match on the main card, but that's not saying it's a, its not a bad thing. It was a still really solid match. And I was just had some notes throughout the match, like Reginald, this Reginald guy, it's definitely, to me, the equivalent of Fonsworth-Bentley, if you remember, Diddy's kind of like guy that he was with back in the day, the guy that he had as his almost psychic. He didn't really do much, but he was there. Fosworth Bentley was exactly that cat, Reginald. Then you had a solid title match, Carmella getting her come up, and she looked really good, and she held her own throughout that match. I was blown away by some of the spots throughout the contest, including you know Reginald holding her and then setting her up for a head scissors spot. Really cool. Absolutely love that. The homage to Eddie Guerrero hitting the three amigos, and then the frog splash for the two, which surprised me. But they have a lot of chemistry. Carmella spiked Sasha so many times with the X Factor. It just looked brutal, and I loved the way this match went. And hopefully I get to see these two have one more go down the road, because I feel like there should be at least one more match between these two. I understand Carmella lost, and now we move on. But I would like to see one more go with these two. It just felt like they had a lot of great chemistry, and they fit really well together. Speaking of people who fit really well together, it's without a doubt the Hurt Business and the New Day. The Raw Tag Team Championship match. For me, this was match of the night. I was saying it was so far in my notes, but I think this was the match of the night for me because it was so damn smooth all throughout the match. These two put together a really good story in a succinct 10-12 like, minute package. And Shelton really blew me away how good he still is in 2020. The way that he caught Kofi Kingston with... Kofi Kingston was like House of Fire, goes for the boom drop. Just as Kofi jumps, Shelton catches him, and the camera angle for that camera cut was so damn smooth. He catches him, picks him up in the powerbomb position, and then basically switches him over into a doomsday. Sajak Alexander tries to hit the doomsday, but Kofi counters with a roll-up, was just silky smooth, and everything about that was Perfect. And also, yeah, the right guy get the win for the team. It was Cedric Alexander here because we see it far too often. I think they've done this, in fact, on Monday Night Raw with Cedric. It is it he gets a tag, the blind tag, but not finish a job. He tries getting too cocky. This was a great example of them pulling that off. And it actually worked with him getting the lumbar check on Kofi and getting the win for his team. And we got new tag team champions. Add the fact that it's continuing to establish that Cedric's not the weak link in the group. The heard business continues to be the best part of Raw. Once they hit the rhythm, because at the beginning they kind of sucked, but now they've started to hit their rhythm, hit their stride, and now that you've got Cedric in there, it absolutely puts this group on another level. And I'm hoping this continues to be a story. I would like to see this match a few more times, to be honest with you. I know i talk about, like, burnout. I'm not burned out on this yet. I think we're continuing to see new stuff out of these guys, and I want to see more. But going back to what I was talking about Cedric, the way they did Cedric, was the right way because I I said it earlier with the cocky heel get the blind tag like, like for instance Colt Caban I can remember it was not full gear but all out where the Dark Order was in a tag team match and they let Colt try and get the pin but Colt got too cocky and they lost the match because of it this was the right way to do it and it would have sucked if you know yeah Cedric not get the win again possibly my favorite match of the night Then we get to the women's tag team title match. Asuka and a Partner to be determined. Taking on Nia Jackson, and Shayna Baszler. And of course, Charlotte Flair was the mystery partner. It felt inevitable to be honest with you. I knew it was coming. And she looked great. She had a lot of work done. Got her implants taken out. And she looked like great. She looked like actually like a real person. Because she, when she had the implants, it felt a little more cartoony. And way too inflated. Honestly, this all worked for me. And I was absolutely here for it. Then... I saw Flair throughout the match. She was basically put over as the true star in this match and it really reestablished her as being a good babyface. She had a really good hot tax house of fire spots. and At one point, she was absolutely waylaying Nia Jax with chops. The way it sounded, like each one was just a slap and you could just hear each and every chop and it was so damn good. It felt almost like I was watching like, a New Japan match with Marafuji where he was just chopping people like crazy. Thankfully, nobody got as hurt as some people did getting chopped by Fuji in Japan. And the champs did really need a number on Asuka, and it was a good storytelling by attacking the arm because, he kept, because Baszler kept trying to get the Kirifuda clutch in on Asuka and also trying to get it on Flair towards the end. The finish was with Baszler trying to get the clutch in, and then Flair basically bridges out of it and hits the natural selection for the win. Surprised by the finish here. Because I thought this was going to lead to a match between Charlotte and Asuka. But maybe we'll get that at WrestleMania. Because I feel like that's what they're trying to do. Is to re- maybe either redo or undo the bad that they did with Asuka. Right? Because they ruined the undefeated streak at WrestleMania 34. Are they trying to fix that by eventually having Asuka finally get over on Charlotte? on a big stage and keep her away from winning the title. Because we all know, Charlotte wants to get like 20 women's titles that surpass her father, Ric Flair, with all the titles that she's won over the years. So who's to say that doesn't continue to happen at WrestleMania? I think, what I'm interested to see how this whole thing goes. Do they continue to be friends or enemies or what have you? I'm looking forward to it. Then we get to the WWE Universal Championship match. The semi-main event of the night, Again, surprised by that. I'll say that much. I was definitely surprised by it. And it starts off, you know, Kevin Owens, a absolute beast, just beats up Roman before the match and beats up Roman before the match even started and then beat up Jey Uso, short order. And then it was all kind of Roman for a good bit of the match with Kevin Owens taking bump after bump after bump going through a bunch of different tables. Didn't go through the announce table though because he put Jey through it so he, was, he avoided that part. And he just was taking so many bad bumps. And somehow, some way, no matter how much it looked like Owens was dead, he kept fighting back. He had some second wind towards the end. I love the fact that they did this where Owens was set up right where the barricade is, where it always breaks apart. And Owens just, the second Reigns went for him, he, he told him, come on, go for it. And then he moved out of the way at the perfect time. And Reigns went through it. And it just absolutely looked brutal. Hell, they had a spear spot where he went through the table. And I don't think the table was gimmick. Because the second it hit, you could hear just like some creaking noise. I was like, what the hell just happened? And it's like, Kevin Owens just sat there. Like, he, he looked like he was dead. And it was like, he was in a fort. And it was like, what the hell just happened? Blown away by that match. Really cool spots throughout. And it was so damn cool. He was literally like, Fingertips away from taking down the belt before getting punched in the balls, and then Reigns puts the guillotine on him, and then he then Owens falls off the ladder. Then Reigns retains and made a star in the process. I think that's something WWE should be doing a lot more. And this was another prime example of Roman. How much this heel turn has been amazing for him, without a doubt. He has been absolutely fantastic. And again, Kevin Owens was a star in this match. I can remember back to 2002, Jeff Hardy. He had a ladder match against The Undertaker on Raw, and you just knew there was no way in hell that Hardy was going to win that match. But he showed so much heart and grit, you believed he had a legitimate chance. Fast forward to last night, and the two guys went out there and made you legitimately believe for even a moment that you know he could get it done. He could, as his shirt says, stun the world. This was exactly what you wanted to see out of Kevin Owens. He's already a star in a certain sense. But this put him into another stratosphere. Now we get to the main event of the evening: the Fiend Bray Wyatt taking on Randy Orton. The match starts off pretty typical, and you're sitting there wondering what the hell is going on and why there isn't any fire. I'm sitting there like, "Come on, where's the fire? Where's the fire? Where is the fire?" And there wasn't any. I was See like, what is going on? And it was probably the third best of the idea of the night. Came after he hit Sister Abigail. He raised his hands up, and then magically fire was ignited all throughout the ringside area, which was the right thing to do with the Thunderdome. Because I I, I like the Inferno match, but it just did not sit well with me, the fact that you continued... Uh, after the what they did with the Inferno match in 2013 with Bray Wyatt, where Bray Wyatt basically had his minions t- put out of the fire by putting like a blanket over it and getting in and beating up Kane, that has kind of gone away. The fact that they did this in the Thunderdome with nobody around and they were able to set the whole thing on fire ringside was perfect. I love that they did that. It was way better than what it could have been if there were fans in the stands. This was way better. And probably a big reason why I've loved the Thunderdome because they absolutely killed it with this. Some cool, like, false finishes throughout after this point. Bray Wyatt had a belt set it on fire and basically tried whipping. Orton with it. Orton moved out of the way at the right time, and it, they had a really awesome spot where it just looked like it was going to be curtains for Orton. Where Bray basically had the old rocking chair; it wasn't his old rocking chair, and set it on fi- and basically put him on the rocker that was soaked in gasoline, set that on fire. Orton moved out of the way just in time. It was so well done. You kept seeing these these false finishes, these cool spots. They had a pickaxe in the match. I was like, why is a pickaxe inside of a WWE ring? It's like, what the hell is that doing there? I was blown away by that. And then you had the Fiend. Finish was he put the man up a claw at Orton and tried to push him into the flames, but Orton turns him around and sets the jacket on fire, which Bray no-sold for the most part. Again, it's the Fiend. It's not like Jason Voorhees. And then, you know, got RKO'd, and then he sold the rest of the way. And again, they never rang the bell for this man, and it was over. The match is over. Orton walks out, and he thinks that, basically, the Fiend is playing dead. You know, he, he's going to play dead and then beat him up again to get his heat back. Nope. Did not get his heat back. And then he pours, like, a whole, like, little thing of gasoline on him and sets Bray on fire. And we cut to black. Puts him on fire. And I was like, what is going on? No, no. No. What is going on? This is awesome. Because it ruled so damn much. I Give me that a lot more than anything else. Because I was like, what the hell is going on? This is the best thing ever. And it was way more than I expected. Because I just thought this was going to be, honestly, an underwhelming show for the most part. But this was way better. And I love the fact that there's a lot of layers to it. When you really think about it and look back on Bray Wyatt's career. Because I just... I was... Blown away by this whole thing that, you know, and it was something I just kind of look back on, is that Bray Wyatt started out as Husky Harris. Husky Harris was written off by Randy Orton in the build for Punk versus Orton back in WrestleMania 27. This is almost ten years ago. This happened with Husky Harris getting punted, and then he just disappeared off the face of the earth, and then a little do we know, a couple years later, he'd come back as Bray Wyatt. And his first match was an Inferno match at SummerSlam against Kane, which he won thanks in large part to his uh, the Bayou Buddies. And then the Fiend's arc, at least it looks like this is going to be the point where the Fiend's arc ends. Or maybe we see him pull Jason Voorhees down the road and come back. I don't know. We'll see. But the Fiend's arc, at least for now, ends after losing an Inferno match to Randy Orton. It might not be that deep when it comes to how they came up with this finish. But I would love to see this be the thing. Because it's something that speaks to me as like a fan of pro wrestling and how much like I miss continuity. Continuity is something I think is very important to the sport of pro wrestling, especially when you have guys that have been like going through multiple character changes. And in the case of Bray Wyatt, it's a subtle change. You're able to tell outright, oh hey, you know, Bray Wyatt and Husky Harris are the exact same guy. Meanwhile, Glenn Jacobs, Dr. Isaac Yankum, Fake Diesel, and Kane, they're all three different characters. Did you like If you weren't into like knowing all the inside secrets, you didn't know that Isaac Yankum was Kane. Or Kane was Isaac Yankum and Fake Diesel at one point. You did not know that because you weren't necessarily following the product in that way. The fact that you're able to kind of understand a guy's character arc from start to finish, Husky Harris, Bray Wyatt, The Fiend, and understand how much he has changed throughout his career, and know that it's almost full circle, especially just the Bray Wyatt slash The Fiend arc, that whole thing was just a matter of starting off with an Inferno match and winning it and then losing it to end this arc. Really cool stuff, and hopefully... We get to see more of this down the road because I miss the days where you'd have callbacks to old storylines, and this entire thing has been a callback to an old old school storyline. I like what they've done with this. It's been really fun to see the ton of layers that have been thrown about. It's been great for pro wrestling, and it was a really great show. No real clunker in the group. Benjamin Carmelo, Sasha Banks being the worst, but it's more because of the fact that you got outshone by. New Day, Herd, Business, Roman Reigns versus uh, Kevin Owens, the Drew McIntyre, AJ Styles match. And, of course, the Inferno match just blew everything else away because it just exceeded all expectations. So it's not a bad thing that Sasha banks Carmella was my least favorite match of the night. It just more speaks to the fact that there was so much other quality on the card. Overall, I think WWE can take this step in the right direction It's just, can they truly execute it? Because they have sucked on Raw lately. I feel like the booking for Raw is the worst it has ever been. And I hate to say that because I loved, like, WB for a long time. But I feel like they have continually ruined it with the three hours. They have made a three-hour show a slog to get through. Especially even if you're watching it like I am. I usually watch a DVR, full disclosure. I watch a DVR version of Monday Night Raw because I'm usually working late Monday nights and same kind of thing on Wednesdays during Dynamite. I am so damn busy I'm not able to keep tabs on watching Monday Night Raw like I used to. And it's a three hour show and I fast forward through it and I, a couple weeks ago I had a show I was watching a show writing down notes I had a show where I had two matches take up maybe seven minutes of 44 minutes of airtime, Seven minutes of wrestling over an hour and I was like, come on, man. Like, get me to the point. Like, like I had to fast forward through video packages and then recapping things from last week. It felt like there was just so much not going on. I got bored and I stopped watching the episode. The Go Home Show, I watched probably a solid hour and a half of it. And then after Lana got hurt, and I was like, I just was going through the motions. At one point, I just like, I never got, I never went back to it. I never went back to it. Meanwhile, TLC was about like I'd say a three hour runtime, just the main card itself. And they did a great job pacing, they did a great job telling stories. Why can't we get that with Monday Night Raw? Smackdown has been improving by leaps and bounds telling stories. They have done a great job establishing different guys. Roman Reigns has become one of the top guys of the company as a heel. And he's done a great job with that, with Paul Heyman in his corner. We see that, Sami Zayn, Kevin Owens, Jey Uso, the, everything, every storyline has a point, and it's fit into a nice two-hour package. I wish we watched SmackDown more and understood how much Raw is suffering because of that three hours. Because you have to fill three hours of creative versus, you know, two hours... And it's a condensed two hours and everything has a purpose. And XT's the same way. AEW has a two hour show and they jam pack it full of big storylines. They fill it with enough to where you're going like boom, 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 boom. boom. Pre tapes, matches, match, pre tape, pre tape. Now like picture in picture. So many different things are going on in a typical AEW show, it feels like it just moves at a brisk pace. You go through the two hours or better yet. Like fast forwarding through commercials and pictures of picture, it's about an hour and a half. John, three hours is a three hour slog fest. If you just have you know a match that goes two minutes, you go to commercial, you come back, the match is still going on, it goes on for about five minutes, another commercial. That's where I just immediately get burnt out. Give me more per segment versus give me more commercial breaks, because I would love to be honest with you. It's something I've always just thought about. I know maybe more sports oriented programming is doing this where they want to have less commercial breaks. Like let's say they want to have, and I'm going more this is going to be more inside baseball here. But let's say per hour of live programming that you have involving sports, like Raw, like SmackDown, or let's use the NFL as an example. The NFL usually is about a three, three and a half hour game. Sometimes it can be four. That's a rare outlier, especially this year. I've seen a lot of games go by fast the exception to the rule was the Saints game this past Sunday because I had to watch the beginning of the show on my laptop and then I switched over after the Saints game to my PS4 and I just watched it live on the network. So I sat there and I'm like, this was a three hour show but it moved quickly because there was so much stuff going on you were able to kind of understand and follow storylines. And you had some pre-tapes and some packages and stuff but it didn't nearly like hurt the product as much as it could have. And I'm like, okay, this was great. And I like the fact that they did this. But going back to the NFL analogy, the NFL is about a three, 3 and a half hour game. If in one hour programming you have, let's say, like three breaks an hour, you could probably have about 20 minutes of content and basically, you know, you'd be okay with it. 20 minutes of content in that first segment. And again, this may not be how... USA wants, they want to have maximized ad dollars, but I'm sure you can do some live reads, some inserts, or what have you. There's a way you can pull it off, I think. But I hate the fact that we continue to see, in terms of television, where on Raw, you probably get like four to five breaks an hour. At least it just feels like it sometimes. It feels like sometimes they get four to five breaks an hour. I think you need to have like a longer break and then a so you can fill more time not four or five breaks all of the same length. It feels like there's just so much going on, and then you have to fast forward through it. That's about two to three minutes worth of waiting for it to come back to action, and all these different things. I feel like that's really where WWE has faltered in a big way. Maybe it's just me thinking out loud, but I think that's where WWE has struggled since the pandemic is being able to figure out how to put a three-hour show together that has good pacing to where it's not a slog to get through because if they, they have a really good hour like a couple weeks ago hour three was really good but you had to sit through two hours of garbage if I had to sit through like hour one was good hour two kind of had a little bit of a lull but it picked up as the hour went on and hour three was really really good I think you'd be able to put together a really good formula from internet raw that way but it feels like it's crap crap and then third then like one segment of the third hour is good it feels like there's just no like rhythm to it. And I hope that they can get into that rhythm one day. Because I think WWE needs to be good. And has a chance to be good. But just doesn't give itself that potential because of Vince McMahon. Vince McMahon needs to just step away. And let Triple H do his thing. Because he's done a great job with NXT. And be able to make that brand viable. I'm sitting here just like, come on now. like Why are we doing this? Why are we continuing to shoot ourselves in the foot? and have WWE just falter every step of the way. That's going to about do it for the Cajun Strong Style Podcast. Make sure you leave us a five-star review, six stars if you're in the Tokyo Dome, for the Cajun Strong Style Podcast, 103.7 The Game's exclusive pro wrestling podcast. You can check it out on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, 103.7thegame.com, the free mobile app, and so many other ways. Think the only way you can't listen to us, is through the FM dial, and I think on Spotify as well, at least for right now. When we get on Spotify, we will let you know, because trust me, we want to make sure you listen to us any way, anytime, anywhere, any place, because trust me, pro wrestling is what matters most in this world, at least to me, so hopefully you enjoyed this week's podcast. We'll be back with you next Monday.